Hello, my name is Charles Goldfarb, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alexander Aleem, for the AOA's podcast, Lessons in Orthopedic Leadership. Welcome back to those who have joined us previously, and if this is your first podcast, we really think you're going to like it. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and please leave a review. So I am super excited about today's podcast, as we have two new orthopedic chairs to share information about their journey. Both were appointed in September of 2019, about six months before the pandemic hit. First, Lisa Latanza is Chair of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at Yale. She obtained her medical degree at the Medical College of Ohio, which is now the University of Toledo College of Medicine and Life Sciences. She did her internship at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center, completed her residency in orthopedic surgery at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and did a fellowship in hand surgery at Roosevelt Hospital, also Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. She obtained further fellowship training in pediatric hand and upper extremity at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children in Dallas, Texas. Lisa joined the faculty of the University of California, San Francisco in 1999, where she stayed until she became chair at Yale. Lisa's done a lot of amazing things, one of which is the Perry Outreach Program, which she founded more than 10 years ago. We may have time to talk about it. Next is Rick Wright, who is chair of orthopedic surgery at Vanderbilt. Rick was my partner here at Washington University for nearly 20 years and remains a friend and confidant. Rick did undergraduate and medical school at the University of Missouri, his home state, Residency was at Vanderbilt University, and fellowship was in Minneapolis. Rick is past president of the AOA and the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery and brings a wealth of experience, although he is a new chair. So without further ado, welcome Lisa, welcome Rick, and let's get to it. Thank you. Excited to, uh, to have y'all. Maybe we can start with Lisa and then Rick. Give us sort of the 30-second, how did this job fall into place. You know, I don't think a lot of us start our careers, and I can speak from my own personal experience, thinking that being a chair of a department is going to be the end game. So how did how did this kind of, I know it's hard to summarize an entire career in 30 seconds, but just sort of, you know, when when did this become a realistic opportunity for you? That's a great question. And I'm, you're right. I didn't set out at the beginning of my career saying that I wanted to be a chair of a department, although probably some people do. I think it was a gradual realization as I rose through the ranks at UCSF as chief of service, vice chair, fellowship director. There was a feeling that I wanted to be able to contribute even more. And basically, I think I realized that I wanted to potentially become a chair when I was looking at a position that was almost more of a lateral move. And It was actually Tad Vale who said, you're aiming too low, you should be a chair. And, you know, most of the time we need a little bit of push to get to that next level, or we need someone to believe in us that we could actually attain that next level. And so that's what started me thinking about it. And then I I did have a executive coach while I was at UCSF, and I spent some time kind of thinking through what the next steps were in my career. And so all of those things came together and a few chair positions came open 
that I applied for and went through process of going after those positions and Yale was the best fit. Perfect. Rick? So Alex, I think you're right. When these med students that are applying for residencies say they want to be a chair someday, I think back, I, I just wanted to match. I just wanted the job. <laughs> yeah, just, give, just give me a chance. And so I look at him and go, okay, wow, that's crazy. But anyway, and I didn't even decide until three-fourths through my fellowship that I wanted to do academics. And then was fortunate enough to, to land very luckily at Jewish Hospital which became Barnes Jewish, and I was part of the full-time faculty and watched our department from its birth. But of course, you know, just like you said, Alex, for 10, 15 years, this didn't even cross my mind. But then I, I became residency director. I found I enjoyed the administrative piece. I enjoyed mentoring the residents and, and the young people, and then eventually decided I had, had I'd done that close to 12 years and thought that someone else should have that chance and gave that to Dr. Sandy Klein. And then Regis O'Keefe took over as chair and, and made me a vice chair and eventually executive vice chair. So for the last five years prior to taking this job, I'd done a lot of administrative work and found I enjoyed it. I think that's a, a real question because you do have to put your practice on a back burner and you have to be comfortable with that. But I had looked at a couple of chair jobs that I didn't think my skill set fit great or that it was a great position for me. And and then Vanderbilt came open and, and I thought they were, they wanted to invest in orthopedics. And I thought that uh, I understood the culture, which uh, had kept many of the good things consistent since I trained here. And obviously I was a little biased. I had, you know, a deep love for the, for the institution or for the department and just felt like this was the right fit. But I think it was just really starting to do a lot of administrative work, enjoying that and having two really uh, outstanding leaders to learn from in Richard Gelberman and Regis O'Keefe that really, really made this last year and a half a lot easier because I'd, I'd seen them work through different time challenges, tough times. So just try to pay attention, learn as much as I could. And then when I had the opportunity, I, I took it. Thank you both. I think you one of the things you both said, which I'd love to delve a little deeper into, is having the support of your chair people when the you made the decision to go seek out a chair job for yourselves. Maybe start with you, Rick. You mentioned Richard Government, you mentioned Regis O'Keefe, and tell us how they influenced your decision, the support that they did uh, or did not give you. And yeah, just expand a bit, please. I, I think both of them were great at being willing to help me weigh the pros and cons of a position. You know, Chuck and Alex, you're, you know what I mean when I say this. Richard held that group that we had at WashU together. <laughs> he didn't want anybody to leave. And so he'd tell me, oh, Rick, you don't want to be chairman. It's a terrible job. You'll, you'll sleep. It's awful. You'll be miserable. It's the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And I go, Richard, you relish the role. You're fantastic at it and, and you enjoy it. You know, no, I don't. I can't stand it. It's terrible. You would never want to do this. You need to stay in St. Louis. <laughs> and, and I just look at him and laugh. But then he he would when I knew I was looking at a position would then become very helpful in assessing the needs and the pros and the cons. Regis, you know, I'd been in a couple of places and looked at a couple of jobs. So he was great at being able to weigh the, the strengths and weaknesses uh, of a place. So you're right. They're great friends and they didn't, you know, they weren't pushing me out of the nest, but at the same time, they were happy to, to feel like they were having some input and some, and helping me and make that decision. So yeah, they were, they were great, but Richard, 
and some of the things he would say was you know, almost comical. And I challenge him on it, and he'd argue with me. I just go, okay, whatever. <laughs> Lisa, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Tad Vale and how he influenced your decision. You said he gave you a bit of a push, but uh, tell us some of the lessons you learned from Tad in, in making this decision. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're in the position of having been somewhere a really long time, and I came right out of fellowship and went to UCSF and had started with David Bradford as the chair and then a couple of interim chairs. And then, and Tad was there as the chair for most of the time that I was at UCSF. And so I kind of think we sort of grew up together there. And so that made it so he knew me pretty well and he'd seen me kind of move from one position to the next and had encouraged me along the way. And I wasn't really sure how he would feel about me thinking of making a leap I knew that I was going to have to go somewhere else, obviously, if I was going to take the next step above uh, vice chair level. But but he actually got to that place for me first when he made the comment about me aiming too low and then I, I needed to be looking at chair jobs. And, and so I think he actually first put the thought in my head. Of course, I'd considered it before, but I had sort of dismissed it because I wasn't sure that I would like that level of administrative work and... I really wasn't sure that I wanted to give up my clinical practice and give up things like really interacting with the hand fellows and and that kind of thing that I enjoyed so much. But he sat down with me a couple times as I started to uh, interview at various places and I think gave me a very realistic picture about what it was like to be a chair. And I'm sure he's not the only one who said this, but he was the first person I heard it from. It's It's a marathon, not a sprint when you're taking one of these jobs on that you have to look for the the long haul and how you're going to change something for the better over a long period of time. So I think he also helped me see kind of what my strengths and weaknesses were at looking at various chair jobs, because as Rick said, each one of these jobs sort of has its own set of positive and negative things and their, their own cultures. And some of them you look at and think, yeah, that's for me. And or it's not for me. So he helped me wade through all of that as well. But I did talk to to other people when I was considering this. I talked to Peter Stern. I did talk to Dr. Gelberman a bit as well. And then, you know, my daily mentors, which is people like Michelle James, I had actually talked to her quite a bit about this type of position and what are the quote unquote right reasons for wanting the job versus maybe the wrong reasons where you'll end up in the job and not be happy with it. So all of those people influenced my decision to keep pursuing it. Yeah, those are those are super interesting. We could probably just respond to some of the things you both said and spend an hour on it. I would say every current chair has to have mixed feelings when one of their department members is considering looking for their own chair job because clearly you are both valued members of your department, critical members of your department. But yet, as you move on, it's incredible how well you reflect on that very department where you both grew up because you were both in one institution for a really long time. So it is a tough, it's got to be tough for the current chair uh, to watch you guys leave. And we'll circle back to that. But I'll turn it over to Alex for a sec. Yeah, I, th- I think kind of building on that, you both kind of mentioned mentors as chairs in your in your former departments. 
wondering if maybe Lisa, you can start speaking about sort of the leadership qualities that you wish to emulate or leaders that you're trying to kind of emulate as you come into this new position, institution that doesn't really have any knowledge of you other than, you know, brief interviews. So um, how did you come in and, and sort of who are your influences when you're establishing your leadership? That's a great question. And I think it's a, a mix of various people and trying to take the best from people that you've observed at different parts in your career. For me, I think um, it was a chance to reinvent myself in some ways, which I welcomed. You know, one of the things that I've, that I noted with Tad from the time he got to UCSF is a really calm and even demeanor, no matter what was happening. And that's not necessarily my, my baseline. I'm a come from a big Italian family where everybody talks a lot and talks over each other and uh, calm is not even in the vocabulary. So, you know, that was something that I thought, well, this really works well in a leadership position. And that's something that I, I you know, I need to try to emulate that, that is not part of my natural DNA. So I think that was one really important thing. And then I, looking at many other mentors, and I'll go back to Michelle James, I like to think of myself as a collaborative leader. And I've seen that in people that I have found to be the most successful or people that I want to be the most like. I think that being collaborative is how you build a culture of respect and how you get buy-in from others in what your vision is. So I, I think that, you know, in short, those are probably two of the the biggest things that I took away from people that that I respect and have tried to emulate. And I think maybe the the third thing is something that I learned early on is is you have to first be credible. And to me, I think that starts with clinical credibility. And when you're building your career, you have to focus on that first and make sure that you're respected in in what the core of what you do is, which is take care of patients and operate and those kinds of things. And then everything else builds off of that. Rick, how about you? I think that having watched uh, the two chairs at Washington University and, and working closely with both of them, they have stylistically, they're very different. And I think I took bits and pieces uh, from both of them. Watched Richard grow a department and then watching Regis run a, a, a more mature department. And I inherited more mature than when we started at WashU, but not as big and not as fleshed out as, as WashU. So I took pieces from each. It's interesting that uh, Lisa would say, Tad, she learned you need that calm demeanor. And something that, that I learned from Regis and that has paid off for me is he said, leaders can't get mad. And I, I came to a place that really prides itself on its collaborative and collegial nature. And that's my nature, you know, my research, everything, you know, I, I, I like team stuff, whether it's sports or moon and Mars and doing research as a team. So I like teams. So the collaborative nature fit me, but I'll occasionally see leaders in the institution, despite that collaborative nature, they get mad and, and you sit there and you go, that's not going to work. You know, that's not going to work long-term. And I think hearing Regis hammer that in, that's been a lesson that I've just said, Rick, you just can't get mad because when you get emotional, you, you expose yourself. So that that's one of the best lessons I've taken. And then just little things. I, I was surrounded by great people at WashU and I, I don't have many great new ideas. So I've stolen little ideas from about 
30 or 40 faculty over the last 25 years and and probably an amalgamation of a bunch of people that and hard to pin it on anyone. And I think that I said this in my AOA address, there are very, very few born leaders and there are very few natural leaders. And so I think you can learn tips and tricks and strategies. And so I still, I, I read, I was reading a leadership book before I came in to get on this Zoom. I, I still try and pick up ideas and tricks. And I read something a couple of weeks ago that, that I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And I've tried using a couple of times. So it's just an evolution. And it's uh, these jobs, definitely not a sprint. And, and sometimes you're impatient because you know you can make a change. And once you make the change, it's going to be better. But these institutions don't change overnight. So you got to just take a deep breath, especially when you go to the South. Things slow down a little bit. So, you know, just occasionally I have to like zen and go, okay, it's not going to happen today. Might not happen this week, but we'll get there. I love how you uh, built off each other's comments. And a lot of what you said was very similar. You also both mentioned looking at several jobs prior to landing at the one that you are currently at, and meaning you looked at several chair jobs. I know that's important to get your quote unquote name out there, but I think it's probably important for other reasons as well. I would assume, and I'd love for you guys to clarify, that you learn a little bit about yourself, you learn a little bit about different institutions, and tell us how, and I'll start with you, Rick, just explain that process and why it's valuable, if it was indeed valuable, why it was valuable for you to look at other jobs before landing at Vanderbilt. Yeah, I, I was busy at uh, WashU covering teams and busy clinical practice and stuff. So I, I tried not to look at anything that I thought if it worked out, I wouldn't take because if I couldn't be emotionally into it, I didn't think I would do a good job of interviewing. And so I, I was pretty serious. And so I would try and prepare and find out a lot about the people that I was going to meet. But I think the good process about going through it a couple of times is that it makes you, you have to come back and put together a scorecard and say, why, why is this job good? Why is it not great? What, what, what are the weaknesses and why is staying what's good about my current situation? And it makes you objectify a little bit more about why you're looking and why you might stay. And you usually have, depending how many you know rounds you might go, a lot of people asking you a lot of questions about yourself. And so you have to define, you have to say what your leadership style is. You have to answer questions about what your plans would be. You have to, to discuss how you would diversify and teach med students and what, how you feel and what's your principles about education. So it really helps you clarify, I think, your own thoughts about why you're interested in the job and how you would do it. And it makes you gain some insight into what your own strengths or weaknesses are when you can have people keep asking you about them. So I, I found that that was really helpful. And just like a, anything you do, practice probably helps. So you do it a couple of times. Those answers get a little, probably a little more polished and a little easier to, to come up with. So I don't think that it makes sense to fake it and try and look at something that you're not ever going to take because you won't be invested in how you approach it and how, how you go through the process. But yeah, I think no doubt when I, and I, I don't want to go too long, but a lot of these jobs start with first day as a interview with you and the entire search committee of, you know, they call airport interviews or whatever. And it'll be, it's you and 15 people. And by the time I did that at Vanderbilt, 
I, in some places, do it a couple times on a couple different interviews or at the start and at the end or whatever. And so by the time I did that at Vanderbilt, I'd done that four or five times. So I, I kind of wasn't intimidated by me sitting at the head of the table with 15 people staring at you, asking hard questions. So, so I, I think that practice does help and it makes you clarify why you're looking. Lisa, uh, I'd love for you to add to that and maybe pull back the curtain a little bit as Rick started to there and tell us kind of some of, I don't know, I, I know you don't want to disclose anything personal, but just just share a little with us, please. Well, I agree with Rick. It's, you know, you get better when you practice. For me, I took a similar approach. It's funny because, you know, one job opened up and I thought, wow, this is going to be perfect. And I have to get this job. And then while I was in that process, another job opened up. And then I got called about a third job and a fourth job. And so it was kind of interesting how once you sort of put your name out there that you're interested, it sort of opens a whole new can of worms. I took the same approach as Rick in that I didn't pursue all of those because some of them, there were places I wasn't interested in or I knew my family wouldn't be interested in. Or I knew enough about the programs already to know that it was probably not a place for me. But so I only ended up interviewing for for two different chair jobs before I was fortunate enough to end up be offered the job at Yale and, and take that job. But you do learn a lot about yourself in the interview process. And I think the other thing that happens along the way, when I look back at the two places that I that I interviewed, you also get better at vision. And I think that that's really what a lot of places are looking for is somebody that has a vision for what a place can be based on where it is and and what they're willing to put into it. And that's what the process helped me with, not only getting to know myself at a deeper level, which I think makes you a better leader and having to answer those questions that those 15 people on the committee are, are pelting you with helps you refine who you are as a leader and also refine your vision for the place that you're most interested in. And, and similar to anything else that you've interviewed for along the way, whether it's matching for residency or fellowship or a job, once you've gotten to know yourself better and you know that place better, then it starts to fall together as to it's either, it's either right or it's not right. And similar to Rick, you, you also start to question, well, is it really so bad where I am? I'm comfortable there. I've got a great practice there. Everybody knows me. Things are finally simple. And, and those can be really big hurdles to overcome psychologically when you're thinking about such a big move, because most of the time to take a chair position, you are moving not just institutions, but geographically. And, and that's a big deal after you've put 20 or 25 years in in a particular place. Yeah, you'll, you'll both mentioned kind of learning leadership styles from various things. Lisa, you mentioned even an executive coach when you started this process Wondering if you kind of talk about just your experience with that, because I think as physicians, we don't really take advantage of a lot of those type of opportunities. I think we're one of the professions that seems to think we can figure everything out and leadership and sort of climbing that ladder. Um, you know, the business industry's figured this out uh, 10 times over us. So what was your experience and how did that maybe play into your interview process? Well, I don't know if it helps everyone, but for me, Having an executive coach was a really eye-opening experience. You know, it's it's sort of work therapy, and it may start out as one thing, but ends up as, as something else entirely. 
And I think, you know, the things that I got out of it were a focus as to what my next goals and ambitions were, as well as learning enough about myself to see if I really fit as a chair or if there was another direction that I should be going. So for me, I kind of started the process wanting to figure out what the next steps were for me. And the executive coach really helped with that. But along the way, I learned a ton about myself that I didn't that I didn't know. And I started to understand a little bit more about um, my leadership style, things that I frankly didn't like and things that I did like and what I needed to focus on to kind of make it to the next level. And so it helped me while I was at UCSF, but really helped to focus me uh, in going after the next step, which was the chair position. Rick, did you have any kind of outside coaching when you were going through the process? I know you're, I've, I've got your list of leadership books on my uh, desktop. I hate to say that I've read like one of them, but I have the list. <laughs> um, uh, and I know that's a big part of how you developed as a leader, but did you get any outside coaching? I think Lisa's right. I didn't. And you didn't hear it talked about so much at WashU. I, we had a couple partners that y'all may not even know that I knew had worked with a coach who found valuable. And I had not. And in looking back, I think it's fantastic because when I got to, to Vanderbilt, I got warned by another one of the relatively new chairs so that I wouldn't be put off by it. But at the end of the first year, the dean says, I think it's time you got a coach. And, and it's your first annual review. And you, if you don't know that it's coming, you might think, wow, I'm in trouble. But he actually... He, he, has, he said, I, I want you to work with my coach. And it's a person he's worked with for 30 years. And so there's no stigma. And it is fantastic. And it's a person that can help me that, you know, I, we meet once a month for an hour and, and, and or I could call him, you know, anytime. But we just talk through relationships with people, challenging issues in the med center. And he talks about strategies and I think he's learned a lot about me and I and and has been able to give really good advice. And so I, in hindsight, it would have been great to have done this 10 years ago. I, I probably could have been a better residency director. Somebody told me some of the knucklehead things I was doing early on, you know, especially so. And that's probably one of my, that is one of my faults. But um, I, I think it's fantastic. And I think people should uh, seek that out. And now with Zoom and the internet and everything. I mean, it'd be, it's so much easier. It doesn't even have to be in your hometown. And I know that my co-fellow that got an executive medical MBA, he got assigned a coach as part of his MBA. And it was while I was looking at the job and he goes, man, you got to work with this guy. He's great. He's a great coach. And, and I should have sought that person out right then. I didn't. So I think it's great. Lisa's right. I wish I would have done it. So I'm loving this. You guys are filled with gems. I have a bunch of questions I want to ask. I'm trying to figure out which one I should ask before Alex gets to ask another one. But uh, I'll go back to Rick. Tell us how the AOA has helped you. Did you participate in any hmm. leadership modules? Obviously, this is what the organization is for, to help develop leaders. But give us a couple of, if you have them, concrete examples of how the AOA was helpful. My first leadership education lesson, formal, anything, was the Kellogg Leadership Module one, met Joe Dean there. Joe Dean Brown, who's so critical to the AOA success. I think her first week on the job was the week of one of the modules I attended in this first couple of years. So that was great. And I was in a room with, I don't know how many attended back then, but 40, 50, 60 orthopedic leaders from around the country. I was pretty junior. 
They were giving great examples. The, the Kellogg educators were fantastic. So that was my actually my first dipping my toe into leadership, and that's uh, education. And I found that even coming back from that weekend, long weekend, that I started using little things uh, at work. And that's when I really kind of started reading more. Richard really thrived on leadership and loved talking about it, loved uh, trading books back and forth, loved you know discussing it. So then I started bouncing thoughts against him. But uh, then every, every AOA meeting, I mean, I, I just biased. I just love the AOA. And uh, to me, the AOA has always been two things, leadership and education, mainly resident education. And so that's my two favorite professional topics beyond clinical care. So I just, every meeting would seek out the, the uh, Leadership Institute or this or that. I mean, there's been so many iterations over the last 15 years of the AOA. And then, and then I was fortunate enough to do the first Barnes WashU Medical Leadership Program. And they got that really pretty right the first time. They had modeled it off a couple from around the country and it was day and a half, once a month. And that was really valuable. Uh, so a couple little things like that. But the AOA and its leadership uh, curriculum, even back in the old days when we didn't really have all this online content and weren't emailing out you know, articles and stuff, it, it was to go to Chicago three or four times and sit in a room full of leaders and discuss and have professional MBA business leaders talk, leadership topics and handling crises. It was fantastic. So the AOA has been critical for, for my leadership development. Lisa? How has the AOA helped you along the way? So similar to Rick, you know, I've taken advantage of as much as I can of annual programming with the leadership curriculum within the AOA. I, I never had the opportunity to attend the Kellogg courses, um, but certainly have taken advantage of everything that I could both in person and, and more recently online. And I think the other thing, the other intangible thing that you get from the AOA, leadership is all about relationships. And I think the AOA specifically is an organization that fosters that um, development of relationships with other people at other institutions that are doing similar things that you're doing, whether it's through CORD or Own the Bone or whatever it might be. So I think there is almost as much organic leadership knowledge that I've gained through the AOA as through the formal things that are offered through AOA. I was wondering if we could go back maybe to like your first few months. You both talk about, you know, setting a vision, institutional culture, coming in as new chairs. You have to sort of set what your vision and your culture is. You know, Lisa, you're at an institution that you have no experience with from training or anything like that. You know, what was your kind of first couple of days like? How did you try to set that tone? And did did you anything go well or how did it did it all blow up in your face when uh when it started? I, I see the smile. So <laughs> uh, I'm smiling because it's all a blur. Honestly, Rick and I both started at a time where we had all these grand plans and then the pandemic hit, you know, a few months into our, our first year as chair. So that's, that's really what I'm chuckling about the best laid plans, as they say, you know, I think Yale was really fantastic about letting me kind of get my feet wet slowly one of the th reasons that I that I chose to come to Yale was that there's really a great group of chairs here. The clinical chairs are fantastic. They're really collaborative. They're very supportive. I got a mentor immediately. 
that was showing me the ropes and, and those kinds of things. So I felt like I had a pretty good introduction in the beginning, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. But having said that, the beginning really was a lot about learning the institutions. That was really challenging for me because the way Yale runs is very different than the institution that I just spent 20 years at. And the relationships between the hospital and the university and the medical group, um, there's more layers than where I came from. So different, different way of making decisions, different uh, way that the politics worked and things like that. So I think in the beginning, it was uh, really just trying to get my arms around the alphabet soup of, you know, YNHH versus YM versus YU. So <laughs> a lot of that kind of thing in the very beginning. And, and then once, you know, getting my feet wet, I, one of the first things I did was met with all the faculty individually so I could start to establish a relationship with each one and get to know really what their goals and aspirations were. Probably the main thing that drove me to be a chair is I really wanted to be able to create a culture and a place where people could thrive. So, you know, create a work environment where people could really attain the highest level that they wanted to and that they could, whether they're a resident or a faculty member or a staff member. And so for me, the best way to do that was to get to know everybody and start to develop relationships. And, and then once I had done that, then it was time to really get down to business and start doing some analysis of, of the actual department and the, the climate as well as the competition and start coming up with a street strategic plan. So within the first three months, we had a, a faculty retreat where I had done a lot of work on a strategic plan, but then we came together as a faculty and discussed everything and set our priorities and that kind of thing. So that was really the first couple months for me. And it seemed hard at the time, but it got a lot harder in February and March. Yeah, no kidding. COVID, uh, COVID definitely threw a wrench in everything. You know, Ricky was a bit of a kind of a homecoming for you, like you said, a place where you had trained. But, you know, from my own personal experience, being faculty at the place where I trained, I mean, you, you have no idea really how things really work uh, as a resident sometimes. Kind of how was that transition for you coming back? Obviously, some people that you knew, some people that you knew people. What was what was your kind of early few months like? Yes, I think it was maybe a little different, but sometimes people would assume you know, you've been gone 25 years, a lot had changed. And so people would assume like, well, you, you know how this works because you were here. I go, no, I was a resident here, you know. But uh, a couple of the faculty I had trained under and we've remained friends. I've, I've remained close. The, the, the other goofy thing, uh, and Lisa probably, I guess probably had similar experience, is that the interview process to choose a chair is not designed for the chair candidate to get to know the faculty that well. And so I had gotten, I had talked to some key leaders in the department, but I inherited about 15 faculty, operative, non-operative and research that were in their first five years. So I inherited a fairly young faculty and didn't know much about some of them. And so uh, I did what Lisa did. And that's the first thing I did was start meeting one-on-one -on -one with everyone, have them bring their CV and sit down figure out what they're about. And, and I think similar to, to Lisa, the part I really liked with the residency was I think we, we changed culture a little bit from the early years when Chuck was a resident uh, about how some of the culture of the residency in the department. 
and I think we had a really good culture uh, for the residents when I left. And I just had one goal, make the resident the best orthopedic surgeon I could at the end of five years. And now that my goal is just let a faculty person become the best faculty person that they want to be and achieve what they want academics. So it's figuring out and, and just trying to break down barriers. The chairs, like I said, very collaborative. And we do it. Uh, I don't know if they do this at Yale, but if they don't, I'm telling you, it's great. We do a chair dinner once a month. No spouses, no dean, just the chairs. And you learn a lot. And that really ties the people together. Of course, that all stopped in February and we haven't had one since. Now we do a virtual. It's not as good, obviously, but we still get together once a month, just the chairs. And that's been really good in helping onboard and have, having a few laughs and, and talking about the craziness. And I think that Vanderbilt has a little different plan. They wanted me to somewhere between nine and 15 months do a strategic plan. And then, and then they would figure out some more resources. Uh, so it's just a little different approach. And so in anticipation of potentially doing that, we had started to talk about, okay, when are we going to do that in February? And so I had all the division chiefs and we had our first faculty retreat on February 29th, which marked the sixth month point in my time there, time here as chair. Uh, and it was a great day. It was Saturday morning and, we, and people were so jazzed and each division was talking about their plans and their goals and whatever. And two weeks later, the world changed. So it went from really the high point of my six months at Vanderbilt and people were walking out of there just excited to be a part of Vanderbilt Orthopedics to, you know, two weeks later, we're shutting down the ORs and everything. And so I think the main problem with COVID, if you're going to ask me, besides just take away the medical aspect and the healthcare aspect or whatever, just from a chair standpoint is the lack of socialization is, is that relationships are hard to figure out over Zoom and it's hard to read a room over Zoom. So when you in six months, you don't know everyone in the institution. So now you're having to be in meetings and it's flat and it's, you know, and you're tr trying not to talk over people. So I, you know, there's no standing out in the hallway with four residents and three faculty at the end of the day talking about cases that they did that day. You know, yeah, I mean, we're starting to get back to some of that a little bit as people get vaccinated, but we've gone a year with kind of a, what I think of as a plateau in my socialization across the institution. I mean, we've done so many Zooms that you do get to know people at some level, but it's not the same as walking into a meeting room. And then those little sidebar conversations when the meeting's over where you solve little problems. So I think from a chair standpoint, for me, the biggest hindrance of the pandemic has been the stopping of in-person socialization with institutional people and my department. And in fact, you know, you can't walk into a resident conference like I used to just to see the residents and see how they're interacting with whoever and listen to whoever's giving a talk. Cause you know, it's just, you can jump on the zoom, but it's just not the same. So. So let's, we don't want to spend too much time on the pandemic because we could have a whole episode of the <laughs> pandemic. Maybe we will. Uh, I'll go back to you, Rick. It, talk about the pandemic. You know, obviously it's probably the greatest leadership challenge that I don't want to make assumptions that either of you have faced and probably any department chair has faced because it turned, has turned everything upside down and we're not done yet. So you mentioned kind of the, the uh, interpersonal relationships. I assume morale has been a challenge and finances have been a challenge. What was your strategy to try to, to handle it as best you could being the new guy? Yeah, it, it, it was hard to, to figure out the temperature and how to react. And 
I think for me, the struggle was, it felt like I was hammering my faculty with emails because every single day something changed. And we were having a surgical chairs group call at 6.45 in the morning and all the clinical chairs call at five o'clock because we're planning and figuring out. I mean, it, and everyone, every other one of those calls would create some sort of policy change about how, what's gonna happen in the OR or what are we gonna do? What pre-testing, well, you, 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 everyone lived through this. And, but then I was hearing other chairs around the country and saying that they, that they had a Zoom call with their faculty every day at noon. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, my, mine would go crazy. They'd revolt. So I, I just kept going to faculty that, and you figure out your lieutenants and the people you can trust and say, am I sending out too many emails? And they go, no, no, you, you only send it out when it's something that matters. You're not just saying hello, how's your day going? Keep sending them. And so I, I just kind of tried to go with my own gut, but it felt like I was just like, you know, because some days you'd have a morning email and an afternoon email and you're like, oh, wow, this is too much. But so that, I think that was the hard part was figuring out the, the style of communication, the flow of communication, where what they needed to hear, where they needed to hear it from, sometimes letting my clinical operations, what we call our patient care center medical director, who's Greg Polkowski, sometimes saying, Greg, why don't you take the lead on this topic just so they can hear it from a different person, you know, just all these little things. But it really felt like I was over communicating and the faculty were like, no, it's just right. Keep it coming. So, you know, I just tried to, to sense from people I trust that I knew would say, yeah, would you cut, cut it out enough or if that would be honest with you? Because, and I, I'd be interested to see what Lisa said. The one fear I have and the one concern you have is that corner office can get pretty isolated and you've got to figure out who's willing to tell the emperor they have no clothes. And while you may not want to hear it always, you got to have some people that'll say, wow, you kind of missed a mark on that one. Because, you know, that way you just don't go down some dead end highway that uh, someone stops you. So, Perfect. So Lisa, tell us both your strategy and I guess your experience. You know, I think reflecting on it, the beginning of the pandemic sort of tested the limits of flexibility, creativity, and morale boosting. And as clinical chairs, we circled the wagons quickly in the beginning to make a lot of plans as to how we were going to try to handle everything. And I think the things that I learned was when there's a crisis, transparency matters and letting people know when you don't know and letting people know that Things are going to change minute to minute, and we're all just going to have to roll with it. I'm one of the chairs who did a, a weekly town hall, and it it turned out, I thought it was to give people information. It turned out that it was to hold the team together and for people to kind of have a safe space. And what I was really surprised about when we stopped doing them, the feedback I got was, can we reinstate this? So as, as things got better and then they started to climb and get worse again, people wanted the town halls back because it just made them feel like they were part of something and that they were in it together with their team, I think. And I think I, in the beginning, I underestimated how important that aspect of things was for people, even more than just getting the information of the nuts and bolts of what was supposed to be happening and what was changing. And 
as much as the pandemic has impacted our ability to socialize and get to know each other on that level, I learned so much about so many people during that first month of the pandemic. I, I learned who was going to step up. I learned, you know, who had great ideas, who could get things done. It was almost an accelerated version of some of those uh, issues as a chair. I mean, I think it's, it's uh, as Chuck said, starting out as a chair and then four months later, the world ending, essentially. It's, it's an amazing challenge. One of the things, and, and probably getting close to wrapping up here soon, but you, you both mentioned kind of finding those allies or those lieutenants, as Rick called them. Obviously, in the pandemic, it, it made it harder. But in those meetings, what are some of the qualities that you're looking for when you're trying to identify your your new allies to help sort of set that vision, set that culture as you're coming in? You know, that's it's a great question. And I think there isn't one particular answer to it because I think everybody has some skill that they can that they can add to the department and help grow things in, in different ways. But for me, it's the people who are just stepping up, willing to do some work, not necessarily the people have that have all the answers or talk the most, but the people who are willing to put in the work to make things better. And the, the people who are willing to, like Rick said, tell you when you're going down the wrong path and they're not afraid to do that, but do it in a respectful manner, as our dean says, public praise and, and private criticism. You know, tell me, tell me behind closed doors what I'm doing wrong, but, you know, let's be a team uh, in, for that effort out front. So I, for me, that's the number one thing that I'm looking for from my faculty is who's going to step up and really take the ball and run with it. And that's the, that is the most important quality, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think that, you know, you walk into a situation where you, you may have peripherally known people, but you don't really know who doesn't answer that email and who, when you ask them to do something, doesn't own it. You know, I, I try and <laughs> It's challenged me because, you know, you just want to fix everything yesterday. So, but I try not to micromanage and to delegate, but the issue with delegation is someone has to own it. And so you figure out who who you can hand things off to and they will own it. They'll ask you for feedback if they need a little help or a little guidance or a little, hey, I'm about halfway done. Is this what you were thinking? But that will take it and actually get it done. And you, and you find out the people that, you know, kind of, aren't just going to uh, to really want to own a problem or an assignment or an issue. I think that if I look back, the one thing that has really carried our department is fortunate for me because it's really critical to me and it's critical to me when I recruit, but I, I inherited an incredibly positive, fundamentally positive group of people because I tell you what, no matter how positive you are, this last year has tested you. So if you start as a half full glass person this year. So luckily I, I didn't get many of those people. And so most of the things have, have just people have stepped up and been willing to do it. And you figure out who, you know, you give smaller tasks to people that you know may not be quite as dependable, but you want to involve as many people as possible. And you give big important things to people that you know will be finishers. All right, maybe one final question, building on that one. And again, I'll go back to you, Rick. Tell us, you know, you both have come from large, really impactful institutions, and you transitioned to really well-respected, slightly smaller institutions. 
And so at your home institution or your originating institution, there was a complex matrix, which is certainly different where you are, but there was a group of vice chairs. Both of you had it. How did you think about the vice chair environment when you transitioned to your new position? I inherited two or three people that had had been made vice chairs, but I wasn't ready to really make that my group until I knew what what their characteristics were. And so I started with a little bigger group, which they had that which had not been a traditional leadership group. And I, and I've done my best to empower the division chiefs, and I've worked through the division chiefs, which includes some of those vice chairs. So it's sort of been, and we don't meet on a regular basis, but we meet when it matters. And so I've tried to, to even with the pandemic and people maybe slower clinically, I try not to meet on a regular basis. And, and it's my division chiefs. But like last Friday, I said, we're get, getting ready to roll out some structure for our clinical research initiatives to, to, for the coordinators and ability to help the residents. And, and it's going to take, it's, it's a little bit of a sea change for us uh, to add the structure. And so I knew I needed to sell it to the division chiefs and then they needed to sell it to everyone else. So I asked them, Hey, just push everything back an hour. I need two hours for a little mini retreat on Friday morning. And they, they all stepped up. We had just a really great couple hours of session. So I, I've worked more through my division chiefs and we meet consistently, but not every week or every month, but when, when the need arises. And so I, I approach it a little differently than I experienced. So once again, I'm somewhere between, you know, Richard had no vice chairs and no, no lieutenant. I mean, you know, he had a residency director and then that was probably about the only named and you, you became medical director of the, of the outpatient center. Other than that, nobody else had much of a title. Other, you know, we had division chiefs, but he, he was a, a more centralized. Regis was more on vice chairs. Like you might guess, I'm in the middle. Thank you. Lisa, how did you approach it? So when I got to Yale, they, there was no structure for vice chairs. There were division chiefs and, and a chair, and that was it. And as you said, coming from UCSF, we had a much different structure of leadership. And I, too, have a pretty young department wonderful faculty, but we're, we're a little bit bottom heavy, not many in the associate professor position and, and not a ton in the professor position. So leadership development was a, a first thing for me. And it became really clear to me early on within the first couple of months that if we were going to do things effectively, I was going to need some considerable help. It's a very good department, but there's a lot of changes that have been happening and there's many things to pay attention to. So we talked about vice chair roles and this I stole from, from UCSF as well. What I had people do is I, I wrote up job descriptions and I, I asked people to apply if they were interested. Um, instead of just appointing people, I wanted to see who was passionate about it. I wanted to hear why they thought they'd be good for that role. And so we started to fill vice chair roles that way. And I, we didn't fill them all at once. But as, as we had people that really wanted to take on certain things like quality and safety or faculty affairs or education, clinical operations, things like that. But there's so much to pay attention to. And if you're in a, you know, a growing department where you're really trying to make a lot of changes, I think the vice chair roles are invaluable. And I think they, they definitely complement what the chiefs are doing, the division chiefs are doing. And uh, 
we run things as an executive committee with the chair and the vice chairs and the division chiefs. And uh, a lot of things are hashed through there because I don't profess to have all the answers. And I have a lot of really smart people around me that I want to take advantage of their opinions as well. That, that's super interesting how you guys approached it somewhat differently and, and uh, I'm sure equally successfully. I'll turn it back to Alex. This has been amazing. I've, I've learned a ton. I've taken like three pages of notes of all the little nuggets that I've gotten from y'all. So, you know, we, as Chuck said, we could probably go on for hours picking your brains, but maybe if we could just get some, some final thoughts just in terms of maybe some of the, the biggest kind of valuable lessons that you've learned in your first year plus of being a chair and thoughts that you would give to younger orthopedic surgeons who are maybe thinking about uh, going into sort of this sort of line of leadership. Lisa, why don't we start with you? I mean, I think some of the things that I've learned, I probably had already learned, but I'm relearning, which is listen more than you talk. You don't always have the best idea and you have a lot of people around you that, that can help if you, if you let them. Patience is a virtue. You know, the whole, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I think the other thing is, and this is still a work in progress for me, is figuring out when you need to care more and when you need to care less so you don't drive yourself and the people around you crazy. I don't mean to sound flippant about that, but in order to be effective, you have to really focus on the things that matter um, to the department, to your faculty, to your dean, but there's so much going on. You can't, you can't have the same level of focus on all those things or you won't be successful at anything or you'll work 25 hours a day. So that's the work in progress for me. Yeah. First of all, I would just say anyone thinking about it, I have found it to be uh, invigorating, rewarding. And I tell people that I've probably only had like three or four days where I went, what was I thinking? (laughs) And I had a great job in St. Louis and great partners and great people. And I think that you have to be uh, at that point in your career. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be biased. I, I mean, I, I got this job, obviously, in the last third of my career, or even beyond that a little bit. But for me, it was like, I woke up one night and after I'd taken the job and said, I never have to say I or me again. I didn't wake up every day and just try and make Vanderbilt orthopedics better. And it's weird, the things that get you looked at for being a chair on your CV are all, I, me, ego stuff. But the job actually doesn't reward that. you got to be completely all in on the group. And that's, you know, and I, I like team success and I really enjoy group success. If you're not ready for that or your career's not to the point where you're ready to let some of that go and work on the success of the team, then, then it may not be something that you want to do. But I think you figure that out by taking on leadership roles in the department and see how that makes you feel. And if you really enjoy that, 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 that's great. For me, the one challenge that I heard chairs say before me, and that until you live it, you don't really understand it. And that is how recruiting, especially early on the first year when each recruit seems so critical to what your vision and your plans are and you know, and they're, and you're not, and you don't get all of them. And then you go, okay, now why would they not have taken this job? It's the best job in the country. Nashville's a cool city. Is it me? You know? And so it's just, it's gut wrenching. And that what is, you know, Richard always used to talk about waking up in the middle of the night, worried about recruiting and how emotional recruiting was. And I thought it can't be that bad. It, it has been that, you know? And so now I've been able to recruit a few people. And so you get to a point where 
doesn't feel quite as life or death with, with each one, but that was probably the thing that I'd heard about, thought, eh, it can't be that much. And then, yeah, it really has been that kind of emotional roller coaster at times. So, but like I said, only three or four days where I kind of said, oh my God, why did I ever do this? So that's pretty good in 18 months in a pandemic. Well, thank you both. Uh, I could not have enjoyed this more. And congratulations to both of you. I think more importantly, congratulations to Vanderbilt and to Yale, because I think this uh, discussion illustrates that they chose wisely. So thank you for your time. And, you know, hopefully we're rolling out of this pandemic soon and you guys can really expand and uh, grow your departments. Thank you so much for having us. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks. This is great. 